0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 289 of the Garrett Ashley Mollet Show podcast. Today is December 29th, 2021. And this episode, as we are just at the very tail end of this year, I want to talk a little bit about what books I read in 2021. I've talked a bit as we've gone through the years about my love of audiobooks and This year was no exception, if not the most productive year for me as far as listening to audiobooks. It was close to, and I didn't meet my goal. My goal was to listen to 55 books in 2021. I did not meet that goal. However, I did listen to 52 books which puts me right at 95%. I think 95% of a goal like 55 books in a year is not half bad. I feel pretty good about it. With just tomorrow and the next day left, and then this year is over, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to try and race through and get three more books in. It is what it is. I think close enough is fine by me where this metric is concerned. But... I want to talk about some of the books that I did read this year and which ones really stood out to me, which ones I would highly recommend, which ones were valuable, but meh. I wouldn't read them again. I wouldn't necessarily highly recommend them to anybody. Did I learn something? Yes. Does that mean it was the best return on investment for the time that I invested, for the time that I spent, I'm not so sure. But in any event, I'm just going to go up the line from the bottom to the top of the list on goodreads.com. Goodreads.com, great little site for keeping track of what books you're reading, writing reviews, reading other people's reviews, seeing what other people are listening to what other people are reading, what they thought of the books that they listened to and read. And also, it's a great place to store books you would like to read. So in my case, I have a pretty good number, a pretty good backlog of books I would like to read. Sometimes those books I would like to read come from seeing friends of mine on goodreads.com, saying that they are reading a book that looks interesting to me, or they would like to read a book that looks interesting to me. Joseph Crampton, if you're listening, you are an inspiration. You are the wind beneath my wings, and you've got some really great titles in your want to read. (laughs) I don't know how you're ever going to read all of the books in your want to read category, but Some of the books that I've thrown in my want to read, I credit Joseph Crampton with having exposed me to. I didn't even know that that was a book, but hey, what do you know? That looks really interesting. I might like to pick that up and give it a read sometime. But starting from the top, as I say, the very first book I finished in 2021 was Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. And the premise of the book is what caught me in addition to the fact that I've read a number of other books by this author, Malcolm Gladwell, best-selling author, I've liked, I think, every other book of his that I've read. I did not care for Talking to Strangers. It was very popular. Lots of people bought it. Lots of people thought really highly of it. I did not care for it. I'll just be honest with you. I will just level with you. A big part of why I didn't like it was that the book opens with a very politically correct, very convenient bit about law enforcement and run-ins with African Americans and how often there's a misunderstanding and African Americans wind up uh, you know tragically dead because of run-ins with law enforcement. I thought that Malcolm Gladwell's treatment of the subject had far too much in common with Black Lives Matter. It seemed designed to cash in on the woke outrage of the moment. And there was a whole lot of the other side of the story that just was not told. And it felt very superficial, and I did not care for it. I didn't like it. He has done better work in other books. It was not his best work. I would not recommend it. The next book I finished in 2021 was Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. And this one, while substantive and meaty, uh, was not my favorite either. I I wouldn't say I loved it, but McIntyre is very often referenced by other people that I very much respect. And I found that out actually after reading After Virtue. I didn't realize until after I had read After Virtue how often he is referenced by other authors that I've read and that I do read. But his book is, I think, helpful in highlighting the fact that being a post-truth society means also being a, in some sense, post-morality society. Postmodernism, having jettisoned truth, which can be known objectively, means also that our standard of virtue is uh, non-existent for all intents and purposes. And so what does that look like? What does that mean practically? What does that do to society when virtue is a thing of the past? A good book that I would recommend for anybody concerned with the subject of ethics and philosophy and where things are at these days versus times past. River of Doubt was the next book. I finished in 2021 by Candace Millard. I didn't even realize that she had written a book about Teddy Roosevelt. And it maybe not my absolute favorite. I think my favorite Teddy Roosevelt biography is still Mornings on Horseback in large part because that biography deals with a young Teddy Roosevelt and kind of the formative years where his father especially spurred him on, if you will, uh, no pun intended, to live a vigorous, strenuous life. Early on in Teddy Roosevelt's life, there was every possibility that asthma was going to very much limit him. And his father, Teddy Roosevelt's father, basically told TR challenged TR to build himself a better body a a stronger body and TR took up that challenge because he had so much love and respect for his father and he went actually above and beyond just building himself a new body he really got very athletic and very hard charging and was always outdoors and he was always hunting big game and he was always exploring and he was he was a tough old bird by the end of his life uh, River of Doubt deals with the end of TR's life, and being one of my favorite historical figures, one of my favorite American presidents, uh, the end of TR's life is sad for me. And so, the book The River of Doubt was honestly a, a, a bit hard to read because it just it, it felt like somebody I know uh, passing away. And and I don't just mean like getting sick and dying. I mean, you could tell he, his light was fading in the last few years. And it was just, it was a very, very sad book to read, but still a good one. Candace Miller is a great author and I highly recommend her work. The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal PhD was the next book we finished I say we because I recommended it to my wife, Lauren, she also read it. We talked about it. I think it was beneficial for us to read The Upside of Stress in 2021, at the beginning of 2021, because 2021 was a stressful year for us, as it was for, I think, most everybody. But The Upside of Stress approaches the topic from a very different angle, a very unexpected angle basically surmising based on the most recent studies that stress is not necessarily unhealthy for you in and of itself. What makes stress toxic typically is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where if you believe that stress is going to kill you, it's going to kill you. If you believe that you can't handle the stress in your life, it, that'll be the case. You, you won't be able to handle the stress in your life. If you believe that stress is normal, that stress is just a part of life, and if you embrace it, you actually can use stress as a kind of fuel. It's like throwing logs on the fire to run a steam engine down the tracks. Uh, of course, the dose makes the poison. It isn't just, in my mind if I could disagree with Kelly McGonagall just a little bit. Uh, It isn't all one or the other. It's not either that stress is just totally toxic or that it's a fuel source all based on what's in your head. Uh, I think it is a question of how much you can put on a person's mind, heart, and body before uh, it's just too much. But still a really helpful book, I think, in exploring some of the ways that stress could be, could be uh, more manageable for so many of us. The next book I finished in 2021 was C.S. Lewis's Paralondria. And actually, I didn't even know that C.S. Lewis had ever written science fiction until a friend of mine mentioned it in passing. I believe it was Lucas Abernathy. Lucas, you can correct me if I'm mistaken, but in any event, Paralondria is the entry into C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. It is different than any other science fiction I've ever read. It is more similar to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and uh, the Screwtape Letters than it is most of the science fiction that I've read, but I really enjoyed it. I did. I I thought it was really good. I thought it was quirky, and it was different, and it was a bit offbeat. Actually, it It kind of reminded me sometimes of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka type fantasy or fiction, Uh, just a little bit offbeat, not necessarily funny, but just a bit bizarre at different turns, but uh, still good nonetheless. The next book I finished in 2021 was The Rights of Man by Thomas Paine, and Thomas Paine being so influential in the founding of America, the United States of America, philosophically, in terms of our politics and the way we think about government and we think about society, for better or worse, Thomas Paine had a outsized influence on the revolutionary generation in American history on up to the present. The rights of man... I did not love. I did not love it. Uh, I felt like Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France was a much stronger argument. It was much more comprehensive. It was much more holistic. And if I could just put it very, very succinctly, my problem with Thomas Paine is that he's full of himself. Uh, Very full of himself, also very short-sighted, very wise in his own eyes. And as we talked about in a recent episode where I explained why I've gotten back on Facebook after deleting my account at the end of 2020, that was two episodes ago, if you want to go back and listen to it. There is more hope for a fool, Proverbs says, than there is for a man who is wise in his own eyes. Thomas Paine was wise in his own eyes, unfortunately. Very smart, very well-spoken. Very clever, but also a fool because he didn't believe that there was a literal God, I don't think. He couldn't quite come out and say, based on when he was alive, where he was alive in history, that he was an atheist. He was accused of atheism, which he always denied. But I think part of why he denied that was just to save his own neck. He really rejected the Christian God, thought it was a whole lot of hokum, and His political philosophy reflects that. Edmund Burke is a much better moral philosopher, political philosopher, and uh, that's my position after having read the representative position for the French Revolution by Thomas Paine and also the representative uh, landmark position against the French Revolution by Edmund Burke. Next in the list was Michael Walsh's Last Stands, and this is not the first book I read by this author again. uh, Michael Walsh also wrote a very interesting exploration of progressivism, leftism in America called The Devil's Pleasure Palace. Uh, I read that here a few years back, and it was very, very strongly worded, very direct, pulled no punches, very Blunt uh, in its assessment that leftism in America is not only godless, it is downright satanic. Uh, Last Stands is about why men not only fight, but are willing to die uh, historically to protect their homelands. Why is it that they're willing to do that? It's going to cost them. They're not going to be around to enjoy what it is that they're protecting and trying to preserve. So why do they do it? And It wasn't necessarily my favorite work. It felt a bit like some entries into this genre by Victor Davis Hanson. I think Victor Davis Hanson is a better author to read. If you had to choose, I didn't have to choose, so neither do you, you could read all of the above. But if I had to choose, I would recommend Victor Davis Hanson before I would recommend Michael Walsh. But all the same, Last Stands really is about preserving way of life. There's something we are deeply committed to as men that we ought to be deeply committed to as men when it comes to what kind of community, what kind of a nation, what kind of a life will our wives and our children and our grandchildren enjoy. We're very driven by that when we embrace our responsibility as men in society. And when a society loses the commitment of the men where posterity is concerned, where their wives and their children are concerned, where their way of life is concerned, uh, those societies do not last. They, they die. They die, they're consumed, they're conquered by outsiders, and that is the end of them. So it's an encouraging work, in a sense, even as it's a cautionary work, that we need to not give up on life, and by life, I mean our way of life uh, if we don't want to be conquered by foreigners. If we don't want to be uh, an occupied territory as Americans, uh, which we ought not to. Uh, we're, we're very foolish if we think that life would be better under a foreign regime. You know, Pick one that would come in and try and take over and it would not be better under that foreign regime. It just wouldn't. It, now, it might be that that ends up being our lot, for having turned our backs on God and having thrown in the towel, but I don't think it's too late to repent uh, myself. And I I hope that it's not uh, going to be the case that we refuse to repent and be stiff-necked. The next work in my reading list that I finished in 2021, I almost can't recommend highly enough because it is historical, but it is also as relevant as it possibly could be to the times that we live in, and what's going on in society right now. Carl R. Truman writes The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and explores what it means that we have embraced LGBTQ dogma, gender theory, etc. Why have we done that? Where did this come from? Where is it going? What's going on? He traces the history of it through the past few hundred years. And he says very, I think, succinctly at one point that the self was psychologized, psychology was sexualized, sexuality was politicized. And if you put all of that together, that really is where we're at. The LGBTQ movement are you for trans people? Are you against trans people? Are you a bigot? What do you want LGBTQ persons to die? Do you hate them because you're disagreeing with their identity, what they think they are, what they profess to be? You're refusing to affirm that you maybe even calling them to repentance of that. Why would it be hateful? Why would it be considered bigoted and violent, even just to disagree with gender theory? Read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self if you want to find out the answer to that. Carl R. Truman is very crisp, very succinct, and charts the path uh, very well, very skillfully, very easy to follow. Check that book out. You won't be sorry that you did. Next book. I finished in 2021 was Hero of the Empire, another work by Candace Millard. So that was two in the early part of this year that I read by the same author, Candace Millard. And between River of Doubt and Hero of the Empire, I very much enjoyed Hero of the Empire in a much happier way than I did the River of Doubt. I still believe River of Doubt was a good book, but Hero of the Empire is a much more upbeat and adventurous story. Hero of the Empire is about Winston Churchill and basically how he came to be known on the national and international scene. It has everything to do with the Boer War between the British Empire and the Boers of South Africa. And there's a lot there in a young Winston Churchill which is to be admired. And Which is marvelous, and when I say marvelous, I mean literally, you you just can't help but marvel at what Moxie and guts young Winston Churchill had. Very interesting backstory, very colorful character, brimming with confidence that he was going to be a great man on the world stage, that he was going to save the British Empire, save the British people, and lo and behold, it ended up being the case check out Hero of the Empire. Again, you won't be sorry that you did. The next book I finished in 2021 was Return of the Strong Gods by R.R. Reno. This one uh, was a surprise, and I think I stumbled across it because Audible said, based on other books that I had read and liked, I might like this one as well, and Audible was correct. R.R. Uh, Reno, as it turns out, and I, did, I had no idea of this when I first picked out Return of the Strong Gods. R.R. R. Reno is editor of First Things magazine. Carl R. Truman writes quite often at First Things, and R.R. Reno is the chief editor there, may even be the founder, I don't remember. But his book, Return of the Strong Gods, is entirely about the post-war consensus in the West, in America and in Europe and across the developed world that wants so badly to be just like America and Europe in our prosperity, in our affluence, in our advancement. Return of the Strong Gods is a rather poetic, classical way of describing how you can only keep the strong historical loyalties which are embedded deep within our hearts and minds for so long. Loyalty to family and to faith and to nation have been greatly diminished since the close of World War II by design. It has been a concentrated and coordinated effort on the part of the elites in the West and around the world to try and strip us of those strong loyalties, those strong gods, as Reno is poetically putting them, those strong gods in our hearts have been seen as the cause of all the trouble in the world. If we weren't so committed to our family, our religion, and our country, then we could have world peace is the big idea. But for one thing, that's not true. For another thing, you can't stop people from being committed to their family, their God, and their country. You can't. You can maybe hide the fact that they still are, and they never stopped being deeply committed to those things for a little while, maybe even for decades. But at a certain point, the pale imitation of those more natural allegiances is going to be shown for what it is. The emperor has no clothes. The strong gods will return again. R.R. R. Reno writes, I think, Uh, a very optimistic, as I see it, view of the future and not distant future either, the fairly near future. I think we saw some of this coming out in the election of Donald Trump in 2016, his narrow defeat, which I don't think was even a legitimate defeat in 2020. But hopefully Reno is correct in his summary that we're going to see a return of the strong gods as they're called, those traditional loyalties. The next book I finished in 2021 was a Michael Crichton work. I like Michael Crichton as an author. His science fiction is heavy on the science and the fiction feels all the more immersive because he takes great pains to incorporate as much science as possible into his stories. Eaters of the Dead, actually, he admits in his either prologue or epilogue, I don't remember which, at a certain point in the writing of it, he couldn't remember himself which parts were true and which parts he had made up. And the really fascinating thing about Eaters of the Dead, which some of you who are a little older, who grew up in the 90s, might remember was made into an Antonio Banderas movie, called The Thirteenth Warrior. Eaters of the Dead is a book about an Arab diplomat traveling through Viking lands and basically being pulled into a story that basically is Beowulf. And what's so fascinating is the true story behind... Michael Crichton's Eaters of the Dead novel and The Thirteenth Warrior, scholars speculate may have actually been the inspiration for Beowulf. There are historical texts which scholars think uh, are accurate, or at least they have good reason to believe are accurate, which form the basis for Eaters of the Dead. And of course... It is a work of fiction. So Crichton does a lot to flesh these things out. No pun intended. But Eaters of the Dead, I very much enjoyed. It's a darker book, but fascinating, actually, all the more so because history is very often like that. How much of this is true? How much of this is dots being connected by the author, by the historian who wants this to be interesting enough for you to keep reading? Only God knows for sure, but... Along the way, it is definitely food for thought. Again, no pun intended. The next book I finished in 2021 was Augustine of Hippos, The City of God. And I was working on this one for a long, long time. It took me many, many months to finish. And that's not because it's not a good book, it's not because it's boring, it's because it is so dense. It's like eating grape nuts. Where grape nuts, for those of you who are unaccustomed or uninitiated, grape nuts are very, very crunchy, very, very dense, and not everybody's cup of tea. But if you've got a bowl of milk and you've got some grape nuts and you sprinkle some sugar on that and you give it a little bit of time, you're willing to be a little bit patient while the grape nuts soak up some milk and soften a little bit, Grape nuts are actually not half bad, but they're very filling. So you don't eat a whole lot of bowls of grape nuts. You eat a bowl of grape nuts and you're full. And if you've got a whole lot of grape nuts in your pantry, it's going to take you a while to eat through all that grape nuts. That's what City of God by Augustine is like. It's like having a pantry full of grape nuts. It's delicious in moderation but you're not going to eat it all in one sitting or even in many sittings. It's going to take a minute, so you've got to be patient. But Augustine was brilliant, and obviously he's not writing scripture when he writes The City of God, but he's writing some very compelling church history and some very compelling uh, philosophy and theology. And as such, you can't help but read Augustine and wish that we had more... Christian philosophers, Christian thinkers of his caliber throughout church history. Maybe there are more of them than we realize, but at least we've got Augustine. I'm not sorry that I read City of God. In fact, if anything, I hope that I understood enough of it. I might just have to go back and read it again somewhere down the line. might be a few years, maybe five, ten years down the line, God willing. I'll read it again. But very thought-provoking, very smart, uh, very persuasive, very powerful book. The next book I finished in 2021 was The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. The Talent Code is a book about how people who are gifted or even world-class, as you might say, in certain fields have certain things in common, and what goes into making somebody talented as we think of it, as we say. What is talent? And is there a kind of algorithm that you can hack to cultivating talent in yourself or in other people around you? Another book by Daniel Coyle I read is The Culture Code. I read that one a number of years back. Didn't even realize he had written another book on talent in a more individual sense, but the talent code is thought-provoking. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's convincing thoroughly, but it definitely hits on themes that are also explored in Robert Greene's book, Mastery, which I also read in recent years, uh, and also... Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, both of which similarly deal with the subject of extraordinarily talented, world-class people. The Talent Code and those other books talk about some peculiar things which seem to be in common uh, with very talented people, like, for instance, the 10,000-hour rule, which says if you do something for 10,000 hours, you will be a master at it. Uh, Other things also are in there in terms of attitude mindset Uh, Is there hard work involved? Yes, there is Uh, It is not just Are you born with it? Uh, It is do you work hard? Do you stay at it? Do you keep at it? Do you? Do what is referred to as deep practice? Actually deep practice being you're willing to engage the subject make a mistake Take a step back adjust your approach re-engage lather, rinse, repeat. Are you willing to do that? If you're not willing to do that, well, then you're not going to become a master at the subject and you're not necessarily going to be considered talented. On to the next book in the queue, How to Be a Conservative by Roger Scruton. Not my favorite book. I know that Roger Scruton is very highly thought of, but I just am not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of his writing style. I think there's a little bit of a cult of personality around him. Maybe he's just not my cup of tea. I don't know. Didn't love it. Read it mostly because people that I respect like Roger Scruton, but I just couldn't quite get into Roger Scruton. The French Revolution by Ian Davidson was another book I finished in 2021. Uh, Kind of a sad subject, The French Revolution, but it reads differently, it looks different when you have read The Rights of Man by Thomas Paine or Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke. I wouldn't say The French Revolution by Ian Davidson was uh, majorly eye-opening. It was all right. Twilight of the American Enlightenment, however, by George M. Marsden was very, very interesting. Actually, I think Uh, paradigm shifting for me in terms of the way I look at American history and how we got to where we're at right now. The Twilight of the American Enlightenment pairs very, very nicely with Return of the Strong Gods by R.R. Reno and The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. Twilight of the American Enlightenment is basically going back farther in time than the 1960s and the 1970s. In my day and age and growing up, hearing my dad talk, hearing my grandparents talk about how messed up American society was in the mainstream, how we had lost God, how we'd become very degenerate morally, sexually, uh, in terms of our appetite for truth and goodness and all of that, the 1960s and the 1970s were very often referenced as at fault something happened in the 1960s and 1970s, and that's when it all really started. Marsden in Twilight of the American Enlightenment says, no, actually, you've got to back up. Look at the 1930s and the 1940s, and that's where you see what turned into the 1960s and 1970s, the sexual revolution, drug culture, free love, the hippie movement, that's where that stuff really uh, came to the fore. Even the 1950s, as much as conservatives like to think that that was a very conservative time, uh, what that uniformity and standardization, that almost industrial type cookie cutter, everybody wears the same thing, drives the same thing, lives in the same kind of house, (laughs) lives the same kind of life, has the same values. That monoculture was actually a bit of a precursor to what we find today with this whole trust the experts talk. This mantra of trust the science, trust the experts, listen to Dr. Fauci, that was what the 1950s were. And the 1960s were a rebellion against that because individuals wanted to break free, but half a dozen and one, six of the other, both were a departure from what does God have to say about this? First, you say, instead of listening to God, we're going to listen to the experts. But then when the experts don't know any better than you do, you just say, well, I'm going to listen to my heart. So that's the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s for you. And here we are. Not the better for it, unless there is some kind of a revival and some kind of a repentance on a national level, I would say. The next book I finished in 2021 was Ron Chernow's biography of Grant. And this one is very long, but also very, very personable. And I never realized uh, what a heroic figure Grant was until I read Ron Chernow's biography of Grant. Grant didn't just have a civil war to fight and to win. He had a lot of personal struggles including but not limited to alcoholism, including but not limited to a lot of naysayers who spoke very, very poorly of him and were constantly trying to destroy his career. Because in part, he did have a drinking problem. But I would say in equal or greater part, he was very excellent, and they couldn't keep up. And so they would rather destroy him than try to compete with him. Ron Chernow's biography of Grant is very compelling. More on that as we go along. I will come back to Ulysses S. Grant. But next in my finished books for 2021 was J. Gresham Mockin's Christianity and Liberalism. This was another one that cropped up in my Audible recommendations based on other things that I had read. And Only after I threw it in my queue and started reading about it, started reading it, and then started reading about it, did I realize, actually, Makan is very influential. I think. I think that's what happened. It's been a few months. It's been several months. This one might have been recommended to me by My Neighbor Two Houses Down or a friend of mine in another state. I don't fully remember What I do remember is Christianity and Liberalism is an excellent book. And I wasn't the only one who read it this year, but I don't remember exactly why I started reading it. I just remember it was very, very good. Machin writes in the early 20th century as a professor at one of our most prestigious Ivy League universities as a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary against progressive theology, against liberal theology. And he comes out very, very strongly, very similar to Michael Walsh in the Devil's Pleasure Palace, saying that liberal Christianity, liberal theology is a false gospel, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Let's not beat around the bush. This is a false gospel. Liberals, in their version of Christianity, are preaching a different gospel, not the historic, authentic, orthodox, biblical gospel. They're preaching a false gospel, and they need to be confronted as such. They need to not be given positions of leadership. If they find themselves or weasel their way into positions of leadership, they need to be ousted. And we've got to resist the temptation to soft-pedal our response to liberal theology, particularly as Christians, really, really good book, very well worded, very well argued, and very well articulated, probably a lot stronger worded than I would have thought was permissible, except by the force of the arguments that Machen makes. I was persuaded by the force of the arguments that Machen makes, and he is very, very bold, but I think he's, I think he's correct, actually. Next book I finished in 2021 was Woody Bacham's Fault Lines, which has everything to do with basically the modern rendition of what Machin was writing about in, I believe, the 1920s, maybe the 1930s. But Fault Lines is about woke Christianity and social justice and how the modern evangelical church in America is divided over what to do with social justice and wokeism. And there's some really good personal history that Bacham gives in Fault Lines. There's also some really helpful church history and American history that is given in Fault Lines. Bauchem, uh is a hero in my mind. I'm sure he's not a perfect man. I'm sure we don't agree on everything. Fault Lines was still a very excellent book and I am so very admiring of Bacham for having written it, having published it. I found it very encouraging I would recommend that if you haven't read it, check it out. The next book I finished in 2021 was Vikings, Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price. And I'll be honest, I wanted to like a book about the history of the Vikings. And I think I still could, but not this one. I did not enjoy this history of the Vikings by Neil Price in large part because He tried to find a way, very similar to Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, to make this subject bow to modern political correctness. He wanted to make the Vikings into a very LGBTQ-friendly pagan throwback. And he admits at a certain point that he was looking for that, he was hoping to find that He didn't quite find that, and yet he still tried to work it in all throughout the book, nevertheless. The Vikings, it should be no shock to anybody, did not have high standards of morality and godliness where sex and violence were concerned. But they certainly were not modern progressives either. So the modern progressives, like Neil Price, are sad to find that out. They really wished that they could have some ancient heroes with horned helmets, but keep looking because you're not going to find them here. Not quite. Another book I finished after Children of Ash and Elm was Roger Scruton's Fool for, Fool's Frauds and Firebrands, which is a little bit of a tongue twister. Thinkers of the New Left. And this one I actually liked better than How to Be a Conservative* by Roger Scruton. But as with that earlier book I finished in 2021, I just can't quite get into Roger Scruton. He's not awful. He's not terrible. It's not like he has nothing good to say, but I just don't find him to be as much worth my time as other authors, other resources. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Next in my finished works this past year was Eusebius's the Church History, and this one, I did an episode about when I was reading it, and I said that it wasn't my favorite, in large part because the way that at least the audiobook was recorded, it was hard to tell sometimes where the interpreter's notes and commentary began and where Eusebius's church history ended. They were two blended together, and what I really would have preferred would have been put your interpretation and your qualifiers and your, well, scholars don't really think this and da, 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 You know, we don't think that that's quite correct. We don't think that's true. Put all of that separated enough to where we know when it's you inserting your own opinion on what Eusebius wrote, but kind of like an interrupting person during a conversation between adults Let the man talk. Let Eusebius say what it is that he's going to say, and then you have your turn. Uh, Didn't love the audiobook adaptation of it. At least maybe the paperback or hard copy would be the same. I don't know. But all the same, Eusebius, after having read Augustine's City of God, I think was helpful in getting a more well-rounded idea of that period in church history. What was going on with the persecution of Christians under the Roman emperors that Constantine especially put an end to. What was happening in the church? What was happening under these pagan emperors? What happened with Constantine the Great as he's known? Eusebius is not as bright a star as Augustine. I'll just be honest with you. Some of the things that Eusebius writes, one has to wonder is this legend Is this hearsay? Is this reliable? But only God knows, as is often the case, as is always the case when it comes to history, truth be told. I think that's quite enough for this episode. I've got to leave it there. It is Wednesday evening, 6 p.m. I need to wrap it up. I'm going in early in the mornings to start training on the new systems integration thing need to make sure that I'm up early out the door early didn't record a podcast episode this morning so here we are but I read so many books this past year in order to get everything in we're just going to have to make it two episodes if that's all right with you stay tuned in the next episode of this podcast to hear about the rest of what I read this year but Oh, oh,